It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. These, of course, are the words of Charles Dickens, the beginning of his book called A Tale of Two Cities. In this book, Dickens chronicles life in England and life in France. Two paradoxical cities and times, London and Paris. A book at which that takes a closer look at much to be praised and much to be grieved. Not unlike our own time, a, a rising inflation rate that was so radically out of control that the rich kept getting richer and the poor, it seemed, kept getting poorer. It was a time of great innovation, a time of industry and growth, but yet a time in which rampant wickedness began to spread like a cancer throughout the cities. It was a paradoxal time. And perhaps this is not only fitting to consider this book, The Tale of Two Cities, but I think would be a helpful beginning to the book of Ruth. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. If you're familiar at all with this particular book we're going to consider this morning, it takes place during a time in Israel that one could easily describe as perhaps the worst of times. If you've ever taken up the reading of your Bible, no doubt you have read the book of Judges. Maybe not your favorite book, I hope, uh, but one, as you read through it, you're confronted with the depravity of man. In fact, if you are able to make it to the end of the book, you, it is almost as if it couldn't get any worse than it does in those final chapters as tremendous evil is perpetrated by God's own people. That all of this evil and wickedness is not done by those outside of the camp of Israel, but rather by God's own people. The very people that were to be a light to the nation, well, they had become just like the nations around them. And if you've already opened your Bible to Ruth, let me just encourage you to turn over back one page. Uh, there is a refrain that takes place that the author uses in Judges to sort of give the reader an understanding of why. Why were things so bad? Why was it that God's people were so wicked? Well, the very last verse of the book of Judges says this, and this again is a refrain throughout the letter. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was anarchy. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no central leadership 
among the people of God. Moses had long been dead. Uh, Joshua had long been dead. And they were ruled by judges. And everyone did what they thought was best. And it led to rampant and widespread wickedness. And this is the time that our book we're going to consider this morning took place. Now, fascinatingly, in Jesus' Bible, in, in, in other words, in the first century Jewish Bible, the book of Ruth doesn't actually follow judges. It's not seen as it is in our Bible as a kind of prelude to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel being the book that we learn how God would appoint a king over Israel a, a, a man by the name of David, a man described as a person after God's own heart. But rather, in, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes in the section just after Job, understanding this being more proverbial as a guide to how to live life under God's providential and sovereign care. Well, nonetheless, of where we put it in our Bible, or really who wrote it, we understand something glorious is taking place here. And if you've read it, my hope is that I want to hold back some of the tension that even as we consider it over the next few weeks, and we could fast forward, of course, to the end and everything gets resolved. Uh, there's, a, there's a resolution to the conflict. But this morning, my hope is for us to to really get a sense that this book isn't really about Ruth at all. In fact, Naomi is really the main character of the book. In fact, even beyond that, God, I hope to show you, is truly the main character. Now, some have sought to argue to say that Ruth is really an, an apology uh, meant to shore up David's lineage. In other words, the author is writing to make clear that though David, his great-grandmother, which is Ruth, um, was not a Jew, she was a God-fearer. She was righteous. And in fact, as we'll see over the weeks ahead, that she was more righteous than most Jews were in this time. I've uh, sort of organized this this morning and over the next several weeks around this theme, faith in troubling times, faith in troubling times. And my hope is to show you um, as you open your Bible and see that the Old Testament is a treasure for the church to help us in our own troubling times to find faith in the sovereignty of God in life's most difficult days. My friend, if you've not turned there already, I invite you to do so. Um, perhaps you'll have to uh, get some of those pages that have never been opened before in your Old Testament. You can rub them together. Yes, yes, I know. It's okay. Confession's good for the soul. It's found on page 222, so it's all the way towards the beginning of the book. So if you're not familiar with looking at the Bible, it's going to kind of be in that first eighth of it. Page 222 in the Pew Bibles, this is the book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kelon died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I too, I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, worked with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, I hope you see here a number of turning. We're going to consider the text, and then after evaluating what the text says, we're hopefully, Lord willing, going to apply it. 
I hope you see, first we saw them leaving the nation of Israel. Uh, we learn that Elimelech and his wife and two sons leave the promised land. And upon leaving, we learn there in verses 1 through 5, the compounding affliction of Naomi. Things unraveled for her. They didn't get bad. They got to the bottom. And then, upon leaving the promised land, then in verses 6 through 18, we saw them returning home to the promised land. They had, Naomi had gotten word that God had visited his people and was providing food again. And so we see this, this return and, and the interactions between both her and her two daughters in law. And then finally, there in verses 19 through 22, we saw that they returned home. And there was quite a buzz about them in the town as Naomi, this Ephrathite from Bethlehem, returns to her home city without her husband and two sons and has a foreigner coming along with her. And even there at the end, we get a glimpse of how this resolution is going to take place as the author gives us that they return at the time of the barley harvest. Now, coming into a text like Ruth, it is very dangerous for us as interpreters. One, because these events, well, frankly, they took place 4,000 years ago. Let me just consider even this morning around our county and state, how many individuals are gathering together to consider a story that is true, but took place thousands of years ago and seeking to order their life around this ancient story. We want to be careful. There's very strange things going on in this text, isn't there? A, a widow sending her daughters-in-laws away. There, there's strange things happening that we'll see in the coming weeks in this Leverite marriage. And even here we get a glimpse of it about her marrying again and having sons and then the, these sons being given to these girls so that then they can have children themselves. Frankly, we just don't do these things. And so, for us, it can feel foreign. It can feel, feel strange and difficult. So as we seek to understand the culture and understand what was going on, then we can kind of come into the 21st century and see the particular principles going on. Well, the author begins by setting up the story. And he does it quite nicely there in verses 1 and 2. We're told of a number of things. Number one, that, that idea, that point that I've already mentioned, that it was the days when the, when the judges ruled. These were not good days in the life of Israel. These were not promising times. It truly was a deplorable time. Compounded upon that, we see that in verse 1, that there was a famine in the land. These were agrarian people. And if they didn't have feed... Not only to feed their animals and to feed themselves, things go, go from bad to worse very quickly. Now, the author doesn't comment on how we are to interpret these particular matters. But we do know from our Bible that God would often give famine to the land. He would strike the land with famine as a, as a sign of His judgment and displeasure. And that could be the case that God had struck His people with famine 
because of their unwillingness to submit to him as king. More than that, we find here a man of Bethlehem. Now, for you and I, we we know Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. The word Bethlehem means the house of bread. The house of bread. In other words, the place that was to be the the heartland of Israel, the place where all the crops were grown, was in Bethlehem. But yet Bethlehem was barren. More than that, we are told that they leave the protection of their homeland and become, and go to rather, the country of Moab. Now, if you've read your Bible at all, you'll know that the Moabite people and the Jewish people, they were not friends. Now, they both descended from the same father. Uh, You might remember Lot. Well, the Moabites were Lot's descendants. Uh, Remember Lot being the nephew of Abraham. And so they were related, but they often did not get along. In fact, Moab is the last stop that the Israelites uh, stopped at before they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And when they arrived in Moab, the Moabites said, "Mm, sorry, you can't pass through our country. You've got to go all the way around our country in order to get to your land. And so these were very frustrating people. Uh, They were not friendly, nor did they find them to be friends. And so it's quite strange that Elimelech would choose to do this. And so we have deplorable times. We have a famine in the land. We have a people that have migrated to a foreign land. And then a greater tragedy strikes. We're told here in verse 2, that, or rather verse 3, that Elimelech dies. Now again, for us, while tragic, it doesn't ring as striking in our society. Why? Well, because we have a social net. We have a social welfare system. Uh, there's a protection. Now, for Naomi, this was the end of the, the line if her two sons can't provide for her. There was nothing that she could do. She couldn't go work or, or make an income. But beyond that, she lost her husband. She's now widowed. And relying on her two sons, we're told here that they lived there in Moab for ten years, taking Moabite wives. Now, while the Bible, again, the author is not commenting on this, we know from the book of Leviticus that this is frowned upon among God's people. They were not to intermarry with other nationalities because often would be the case the husbands would take the gods of their wives. And so they were often discouraged of that. And so we see the unfolding narrative that Naomi not only loses her husband, but then loses her two sons, Malon and Kelon. And more than that, if you see implied in the text, look there, they lived about ten years and then Malon and Kelon died. Orpah and Ruth were childless. They were barren. Naomi had no sons, 
no grandsons, this is the bottom for a woman like Naomi. This would have been a tragic place to find herself in. A desperate time, which is why we see her then deciding to return to the promised land. In verses 6 through 14, as she responds to this compounding affliction, she begins to give us an understanding of how she's thinking about what has happened to her. She encourages Ruth and Orpah to return to their families because there these two wives, themselves being widowed, would have been provided for from their father's homes. They would have been cared for. They would have been fed and clothed and protected. And so the plan was to have them return back to their Moabite family and Naomi would then return back to Israel where she would plead upon the mercy of someone around her to provide for this old widow. And upon this decision, we saw in the text in a very clear way that the sisters, that the daughters-in-law, the sisters-in-law don't want to leave. They want to stay with her. No, 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 no. Of course, they've lived with her for 10 years. They're not going to just go and abandon Naomi. They, they know what will happen to Naomi. And so they, they, they work together to come up with this plan. No, no, we'll stay with you. We'll work this out together. But Naomi insists you must go back to your family. She knew that if she allowed them to remain, that things would not probably turn out best. We see in the unfolding narrative that Naomi is going down a very dark road. In fact, as we saw at the end, she even changes her name from Naomi to Mara. She doesn't want these girls to cling close to her because she understands that God is against her. And she thinks that if these ladies stay, then God will be against them as well. She's wrongly interpreting what God is actually doing. Well, in verses 14 through 18, then we see that Ruth clung to Naomi, to Naomi's people, and to Naomi's God. Look there at verse uh, 16. Ruth doubles down. He says, she says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then she expresses this vow. She, she almost makes a covenantal vow with her. She says, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth says, I'm not leaving you. I'm committed to this. I'm going to help. We see a bit of her character beginning to come through, isn't she? That in the midst of the affliction that she herself has faced, her husband has died. She's in just the same predicament as Naomi. But she is committed, trusting and depending on God, even in these slight ways. Why would, why would Ruth choose God to be her God if she didn't believe that possibly God would work all of this out. Why would anybody want God, if you were attributing all the horrible things that were happening in your life, why would you want to serve this God? 
Even in her vow, we begin to see Ruth's character rising above and her faith being made clear. Well, upon returning home, then we saw there as the town was abuzz at Naomi's return, the women saying, is this Naomi? Perhaps her appearance, perhaps life had been so hard on her, maybe she was so dejected that it it was evident and clear that this wasn't the same woman who had left ten years earlier. Life truly had been hard on her, and the people took notice. In fact, she, she calls on them in verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't, don't call me pleasant. Life isn't pleasant. Life isn't a bed of roses. Things are not good with me. I want a name change. Don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Now, throughout the text, she has used this word. So, beginning back in verse 13. When she's trying to convince her daughters, um, and we see a little bit of the Leverite marriage even here coming up, which was the Leverite marriage was that the son, the, the youngest son, so if an older son died, the younger son then would marry the wife of the older brother or a family member. And that's as we'll see how things get worked out in this unfolding drama. She goes to say, No, my daughters, verse 13. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. Exceedingly Mara. It's exceedingly. She embraces life's bitterness, what she's interpreting as God's hand that has gone out against her. She thinks God is out to get her. She thinks because of the compounding affliction and suffering that God must be angry with her, God must hate her, and therefore things are bitter. She doesn't want anyone around her, and she definitely doesn't want the town to be infected by her disease. This is what she concludes in verse 20. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. One of the wonderful truths that we will see in the days ahead is that God graciously shows Naomi that that's not true. That yeah, you might have thought you went away full and that you went away empty and you came back empty-handed. Oh, but you didn't. You came with the one whom God would use to rescue you. To rescue your family. You You didn't go away with nothing. You came back with Ruth. The one whom God would use to bring about His covenant purposes. In returning home with Ruth to Bethlehem, we see even a glimpse that God has more going on in this story than we even realize. Verse 22, So Naomi returned 
and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest. One thing that you will find as you read this story is this overarching truth, that even in our suffering. God is not working against us, but working for us to bring about His sovereign purposes. That God uses our afflictions to multiply our blessings. This is the truth. This is the overarching truth story of Ruth in the meta-narrative of Scripture that God has a bigger purpose than even Naomi can realize. Now, of course, Naomi's in the driver's seat. She, she has the dashboard view. And, and you and I have the helicopter view. We're looking down at a 30,000-foot view. We're looking down on this story. And so we can see the unfolding drama. We can see God's hand at work. But you and I must learn to trust God's sovereign grace even in life's darkest days. It began with Elimelech fleeing the promised land. He shouldn't have done that. And so this morning, I want us to consider three principles that we can learn from Naomi's compounding affliction. Number one, don't run from your problems. Don't run from your problems. I really do believe that this is the main idea of chapter one, that we ought not run from our problems our afflictions, our sufferings, our difficulties. This is what Elimelech and Naomi do. They run. There's a famine in the land. Rather than giving themselves to trusting that God will provide for His people as He did evidently there in verse 22, that God in His good Wisdom and timing will provide in His purposes, in His ways. Friend, you cannot hide from God, nor should you hide from your problems. You simply can't. Elimelech was in trouble. His family was in trouble. Naomi was in trouble. One of the overarching truths that we find Naomi learning here is that we can't blame God. We can't think that God is against us, but that He is for us. God was not against Naomi. God's hand hadn't gone out against her. No, no, God was orchestrating even in Naomi's rebellion, even in Elimelech's rebellion, God was still at work to bring about His covenant purposes in the life of God's people. One of the theological truths that we're going to be confronted here is the word hased. 
Hesed is a Hebrew word that means that God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a loyal God. God is loyal. Your Bible translates it often as the steadfast love of God. God's character is such that He is a loyal God. Even when His people abandon Him, He remains loyal to them. As the psalmist says, for the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. Although it might feel as if God has checked out in your life, Brother, sister, let me encourage you. He will never abandon His people. We sang earlier, He will hold me fast. He holds us fast. We we don't hold fast. We hold loosely. We we barely have a grip on this thing. But, But God has promised that He will hold us. That He will not abandon His heritage, His chosen people. Brothers and sisters, know that His elect are always secure. There is in no insecurity in, for those who have believed upon Christ. Even in life's roughest seas, God is still at work. Bringing about, even consider this truth this morning, friend. You're here. You found this church all those years ago. It was this congregation that you found. All the other congregations there were and Bible-believing churches and Baptist churches. And it was this church, this place. And then when you endured the affliction and sufferings that you endured, it was these people who comforted you and cared for you and loved on you. Friend, do not think that it was happenstance, mere chance. This is one of the truths we'll see in chapter 2, that that Ruth happened into the field of of Boaz. Oh, she just happened to stumble into the one place in the one person's uh, field that would be her kinsman redeemer. Oh, friend, there is no chance in life. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless state and hath shed His own blood for my soul. Friend, this is our hope in troubling times. This is what steadies the ship, not us. Not our ability to figure life out and figure where God's against us or for us, but rather that that how could God be against us if He would give His own Son for us? Friend, what a wonderful truth that, that Christ came and died the death you deserved. Do not think that God is against you. In giving His own Son, God has demonstrated that He is for you. Even in our story this morning, in God giving Naomi Ruth, that would ultimately lead to her multiplied blessings. That's the second point I hope you to see. 
See that God is still at work in your suffering. That God uses our affliction to multiply our blessings. Friend, this is a wonderful truth that the Bible testifies to, not merely in this story, but from Genesis to Revelation. That God is, we reject the view that God is a deist. We reject the view of the deist. That, that God sort of just, you know, put all the dominoes out and He pushed over the first domino and, you know, things have just kind of been unfolding and the next domino falls and, you know, that's where you get chance, that's where you get karma, that's where you get all of these terrible ideas. No, 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 no. The Bible paints an entirely different picture. It paints a picture that God is sovereignly, meticulously orchestrating every single event of human history to bring it about to his purposes. This was the testimony of Joseph to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. How could he say that? How could he say that all of the terror, because God was meticulously working. He just happened into Pharaoh's house. I mean, Potiphar's house, did he just happen into to, to being his cupbearer? Oh, friend, God was working behind the scenes, orchestrating every event. Or as the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You hear that? Affliction prepares us for glory. First suffering, then glory. Friend, that's the story of Jesus. A story of affliction, of suffering, of anguish and pain, and dying the death that He did not deserve. And then came glory. Or as James writes, can count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Friend, this is the wonderful truth that the prosperity gospel fails to capture. That God blesses through suffering. That when we suffer, we actually become more holy. Not that we should rejoice in our sufferings, Paul writes. But we rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Friend, we do not mean to speak lightly of affliction and suffering. I don't believe the Bible paints a picture that we ought to just brush it away as if it's nothing. No, the afflictions in this life are, are real and hard and raw. And the Bible never handles them with kids' gloves. It, it, it paints a very raw and hard picture. We ought never to make light of affliction. But we ought to see God's goodness even in our affliction. That He is at work to bless us and to care for us. Calvin helpfully thought through God's providence as he writes, Nor are His might and wisdom hidden from view. He's thinking about God's 
providence here. He says the first is plain, plainly seen when, very often, the cruelty of the wicked, which humanly speaking seem unassailable, is in an instant crushed and destroyed. Their arrogance tamed, their defenses overrun, their weapons scattered and broken to the pieces. Their strength dispersed, their schemes frustrated and undone by their recklessness. Their daring which reached up above the skies, dragged down to the earth's very core. Once more, those who are despised are raised up from the dust. The poor are lifted out of the dung heap. The oppressed and the afflicted are rescued from dire distress. The the despairing are restored to hope. And the defenseless few triumphed over the many-armed, the weak over the strong. God orchestrates the affairs of men to multiply our blessings. Naomi left empty, but she returned full. God had not abandoned His people. Lastly here, we ought to learn to trust God's sovereign grace in life's darkest days. Friend, it is a fight of faith in the midst of suffering. It is a fight of faith. When the cares of this world are crushing upon us, when the difficulties of life continue to press upon our minds and our souls, even as our outer body is wasting away, literally every day we feel the weight of the brokenness of this world in our physical body. That we need to trust that God is still at work. As Christians, we ought to be the most hopeful of people in these troubling times we find ourselves in. We ought not to give ourselves to despair and hopelessness. Yes, this world is broken. Yes, there is evil that abounds rampantly. Yes, it is as if the enemy is shouting from the mountaintops, how more perverse can we be as a society? I get it. I understand it. And we ought to lament it, but we ought never to despair of life itself. In this you rejoice, Peter writes, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord. When we suffer, God is glorified. Friend, you ought never to think that your suffering is a waste. That it's pointless. God has a point in all of our affliction. And that is to display His sovereign grace in our lives. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, let us pause and wonder at God's purposes from of old. Not only when we were born into the world did Christ love you, but He delights where the, with the sons of men before there were sons of men. He often thought of them from everlasting to everlasting. He has set His affection upon you. Here's what Spurgeon is saying. God knew you before you were ever created. He knew you. 
And since he has been so long about your salvation, will he not accomplish it? Has he from everlasting been going forth to save me? And will he lose me now? It is inconceivable that having carried me in his hand as his precious jewel, that he would now let me slip through between his fingers. Did he choose me before the mountains were brought forth? Or did he bring me about that, that, he, that I might, might perish? Impossible, Spurgeon says. I am sure that he would not have loved me for so long if he had not been a faithful lover. If he could grow weary of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a love as deep as hell and as strong as death, he would not have turned, he would have turned from me long ago. What joy above all joys to know that I am his everlasting and inalienable inheritance, given to him by his Father before the earth was formed. Everlasting love shall be the pillow on which I rest my head tonight. Friend, trust that God from eternity past has purposed to save you, and he will not now let you go. Even in the midst of life's darkest days, God is still at work. Even in our sufferings, God is not working against us, but working for us. Oh, brother and sister, I hope you see that this morning. God is not against you. Fight against that doubt. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. See that God uses our afflictions to multiply our blessings. Greater is the one who suffered than the one who never suffered at all. John Newton, the great hymn writer, says we cannot but mourn to find that our passage lies through fire and water. We ought to rejoice that this difficult way will lead us to a wealthy place where joy will be unspeakable, glorious, and endless. Friend, our journey may be hard, may be difficult. Oh, but it will be worth it when we arrive at the gates of that celestial city and see our Lord forever. As we so often sing, Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I don't see any earthly good in my suffering, in my affliction, in the sufferings of my children and my grandchildren, in the world around me. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. What, what is it? I know this truth. Take it home. My pain will not be wasted. Christ completes His work in me. Not, a, not an ounce of it. Not a day, not a moment, not a second of your affliction will ever be wasted. 
as Christ completes the work that he began before the foundation of the world, he will bring it to completion at his return. Let's pray. Father, we do not think about these matters lightly. So many of our brothers and sisters have suffered so great in life. Oh, Father, we seek not to diminish their pain or the horror that they have faced. To find ourselves even now not seeking to explain everything, but seeking to trust You are a good God who is graciously, sovereignly guiding our life. And though we cannot explain why we have suffered in this way, we know that You will not abandon Your heritage. You will not let Your people go just as you have not let Naomi go, not just as you did not let Ruth go, but raising up a, a grandson who would birth King David. And then King David's greater son, our King Jesus. Let us never doubt, Lord, your sovereign goodness in our life. Let us renew our trust in You even now as we feast upon the body and the blood of Christ. A reminder that You will never, no, not never, abandon Your people. Help us, we pray, to know this well for Your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.